If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome, I would say, to a kind of intimate salon, to a masterclass, or even, should we say, given the book we're discussing, a maestro class <laughs> with the wonderful writer, novelist, six books in now with the extraordinary diary of film, Niven Govindan. Now, we're in an intimate environment here, and I would urge you then to take advantage of this close encounter with the author. Um, although this is a little bit of a distance, we need to breach, of course, with the conversational possibilities of the evening. And take advantage of this moment, and let's get a conversation going once um, I've got myself out of the way. And... Uh, and really talk about what film, art, literature and life mean, how they relate to each other, how they often are in conflict with each other sometimes, and what kind of journey and sense of possibility uh, for the making of meaning they can give us. Now, Niven's book is really wonderful. We were outside earlier and we were admiring... Um, uh, well, he was admiring, I have to say. I mean, let's be honest. He was admiring my jacket. And I can I can claim no credit for this. Um, I, I mean, I own it, of course, but I didn't in any way create it. It has details um, that can be discovered. Um, but we both agreed a good jacket can get you a long way. Now, this is a great jacket <laughs> because, it not is. least, um, starting with Max Porter at the top, exquisite on art making obsession and responsibility a gorgeous novel now max porter we were honoring outside but let's actually go to the first sentence of his endorsement inside and i will be drawing on these endorsements for many of my questions because in a way they cover the extraordinary range of this book and this book is really well loved let's just um, be under no uh, illusion about that there are incredible people in here saying wonderful things about this book but let's just start with Max's first line, precision-engineered European modernism. Now, that's, that to me sounds like the creative version of Vorsprung Dork Technik, of course, which is a brilliant way of basically saying this is an incredibly crafted book about a film. Now, it joins a wonderful lineage of books, novels about cinema, about filmmaking, about film going, about being in films. But this book really brings all those elements together and is really an A-star or Palm Door winning addition to this list. Now, Niven, um, I've set the scene a little bit on what the book might be about, but it's actually about, let's say, four people and how they interact with each other in the context of a film festival in northern Italy. Yeah. It's incredibly well observed. Uh, anyone who's been to a film festival um, might uh, well find their own experience in all sorts of ways reflected and caught in this book. Is it based on a particular encounter or sense of encounters that you had at a film festival? And if not, how did it come into being? Um, no, it's not based in terms of that. If the events in the book, it's not based on anything. It's, you know, the beauty of fiction is I made it all up. Um, but it's, it's, it's just come from a, um, a long-held desire to kind of write a serious novel about a film. Um, and we'll talk about this a bit later. Obviously, I studied filmmaking at university, um, but I was never interested in making films particularly. Yeah. But I did want to make a film in my own way. And in writing this, I, I realised quite early on that I was basically writing the film that I wanted to make, but I'm just doing it in prose, right. essentially. Although we should say 
this is now optioned to be a film. To be a film. And so, in a way, you know, the, the brilliant Hall of Mirrors now begins. Now, already, I'm thinking about the idea of screens, of course. Our experience of screens, mine at least, I'm sure yours for much of the time as well, has been one screen in our domestic environment. I'm already having trouble moving across about 90 degrees, I guess, to two locations. So please bear with me. If I ignore one side of the room for 40, 45 minutes, I will get back to you before the end. Um, I jest in, well, in one way, but this is also a book, of course, that was written. We kind of do the calculations and, and the publishing schedules and so on, at least partly during lockdown. Is that right? Um, no. It was, there we are. Publishing works really, really far in advance. So this came out in 2020 and I delivered it. But no, 2021. So 2021 it came yeah, out. 2021. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, no, I delivered it like end of 2019. So it, it had already been Right, so done. you already had a... a yeah. yeah, yeah. But what is interesting is that it reads now for us, of course, as this kind of dream, this almost like sort of, um, you know, praise song to the possibilities of social meeting in the world. Yeah. And ideally outside of the UK, um, but in certainly in a European context, with all the pleasures of a chance encounter and spontaneous possibility and so on. So it reads in a very different way than you know, or let's say, had the pandemic not taken the course it did. Now, you have written, back in 2008, a short story, a, a piece of prose, let's say. Mm. It's a page long called My Cinephiliac Shame. Yeah. Where you are imagining yourself, or the, the writer of the book, certainly, of the pieces, um, in, in the house, writing a novel, and struggling to go out except to go to films. Yeah. And you actually, in 2008, used the word in lockdown in the house which I found to be very, very strange when I read that story recently. But in a way, that's what the novelist does, isn't it? I mean, they have to go into a form of lockdown yeah. wherever they do Well, I mean, you know, this is a book not just about filmmaking. It's, it's really about creative life in general. Absolutely. And, you know, the whole thing about creative life is you have to do the work and you, you can only do the work by just getting on with it. And, it, you know, I'm really talking about the tension between um, creative work that is collaborative and non-collaborative. Yeah. So you've got a filmmaker who's wandering the Italian streets <laughs> and he meets a woman in the cafe on the first day and they strike up this conversation. They, they kind of sense that they, there's some kind of degree of commonality between them. And um, she is uh, like an art kind of city guy and she takes him on some walks around the city and they... Like something really interesting happens between them on this walk, and they they finish his walk, and he's really entranced by her, and he realizes that she's a writer, and he reads her work, and he becomes really obsessed with her, and wants to look, you know, use her book for his next film. And one of the things I was interested in is exploring this tension between um, an artist who is very collaborative, because filmmaking is a very collaborative process, yeah. and his. Um, fascination with the non-collaborative arts. So he's really in, in awe of writers, as everyone should be. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I very much like that kind of um, sort of investigation of that tension. I mean, what is interesting is he obviously he's, he's an auteur in the kind of classic sense of, yeah. of, of world cinema. He's called Maestro, of course, by um, a number of, of, uh, of characters in the, in the scenarios. Um, and he's also aware, you know, even in filmic sense, of, of when, when he makes the decisions that might be, you know, quite brutal for, for some of the characters or the way the films are edited yeah. and scenes are put together, where, you know, the collaborative aspect of the industrial side of filmmaking is put to one side and his vision in this case 
is the one that sees it through. So there's lots of contradictions. It's not a binary setup, is it? I mean, you blur those boundaries, you know, very, very productively. But can we perhaps hear? Yeah, let's, sure. Let's hear from the from the. From let's. The um, I read a passage from the beginning, which kind of really sets the scene um, of what this book is, and this is narrated by this director. I flew to the Italian city of B to attend the film festival in late March. Our entry into the competition, a liberal adaptation of William Maxwell's novel, The Folded Leaf, had been officially confirmed, and I was expected to participate in three days of interviews and panels to promote the release, with a jury screening on the second evening. My co-producer Gabriella had arrived at the start of the week to prepare, also the cast, who were busy hawking other projects, about which I was both curious and jealous. It's hard to think of actors, good actors, as anything other than your own once you've worked with them. I knew they'd be wanting I knew they would be expecting me to see their films while I was there, wanting their betrayals to be blessed, and I anticipated it would hurt as much as watching them with other lovers, a feeling especially pronounced when the new film was still warm on my lips. Eight months had passed since the production had wrapped and I missed their company, particularly the two leads, Lorian and Tom, who had a youthful ease that blended seamlessly into our production family. Nothing of the film could be changed at this point and I'd made my peace with it, absorbing the heightened pressure of meeting strict deadlines in order to screen in this competition. There were other festivals through the spring and summer, but this was the one that mattered to me, having previously brought me luck and with it a sense of calm. But for all my confidence, I arrived in the city feeling apprehensive. The trip had the air of both a working holiday and a funeral. There was excitement for the next stage in the film's journey, one in which I envisaged only good things, but also a finality, for with it my participation would cease. It was for Gabby, the actors and their publicists, to take the baton and run for the glory they dreamed of. I could return to my hometown of S, regroup and retreat into my ideas. My first impulse on arriving at the airport was to have the car take me directly to the hotel. So keen was I to see Lorien and Tom again, to hear their voices and to feel their breath. I wanted to suffer their tender, respectful mockery, typical of young Americans who'd been brought up well, but I was also aware that this would be the last time that I'd play their love in God, and I wished to delay that. They'd not yet seen the completed film, so therefore a realm existed where they could not be disappointed in me. It wasn't the first time that I explicitly sought the love of my actors. There's an almost supernatural aura of openness, risk-taking and safety present in the shooting of some films that doesn't exist in others. As always, we've been pressured by a tight shooting um, schedule and insufficient money, but the folded leaf was nourished by magic. It informed the breaking light of dawn shooting and held its power over us until the end of the day. Drunk on its potency, it interrupted my sleep for much of the principal photography. So keen was I not to lose this holy atmosphere, feeling the mist would clear on waking. I'm not a superstitious man. There's no room for the Ouija in filmmaking, but we're all touched by the same feeling and simply wish this gift to stay. It was something I hoped was honoured in the final cut and by which Lorin and Tom's faith in me would be justified, as mine already was with them. I asked the driver to take me to the harbour where the fishermen were delivering their catch, with a strict instruction to collect me at the same spot in half an hour. My late grandparents lived in a fishing village, so there was something resolutely familiar in watching the boats come in. Fishermen from the one trawler docks carried a procession of buckets to a line of trestle tables, holding large polystyrene boxes loaded with ice. I was taken back to childhood and the surprise of seeing what was there, watching as the buckets were swiftly upturned, a shower of fish clattering in their new ice boxes. 
Then, as now, there was something depressing about being unable to compete with nature and how much of its inf infinitesimal wonder could outsmart the camera. My film was set in the Italian countryside, and though the gardens were lit by angels, the fruit trees fulsome and glowing, they did not contain the life that tumbled before me. I thought of parental disappointment when a child follows a lesser path, only the state of film the state of the film was entirely down to my hands. I was no bystander, but responsible for all of it. The woman on the other side of the table was shouting at me for blocking the view of the others who were waiting to buy. I was awake to the laughter of the grounded fishermen as they sluiced the blood and guts from the cobbles with buckets of fresh seawater and the attack cry of the gulls that, that hovered above. Get a move on, came a man's voice. What's he doing? asked another. Make your decision somewhere else, mate. I seemed to move further back into the crowd, but I knew I would not leave without buying a fish, eventually taking what was left in the box, a grouper and a sickly-looking grey mallet, and going back to find the car. The bag was of the thinnest white plastic, gossamer to the touch, which allowed the rough texture of the grouper's scales to graze my palms as I walked. I could have held the bag by its flimsy handle, but instead I held out the package horizontally before me, as if making an offering to anyone who would stop and acknowledge my presence. My film was offered on similar terms. By walking into the hotel and the suite reserved for my first meeting with Gabby and the cast, and then subsequently with journalists and potential distributors, I too was making an offering, as pure and sincere as the catch turning rigid in my hands, until I suddenly felt embarrassed, dumping the package in the gutter before we drove away. I looked at my gesture rotting in the sun until it was out of sight, hoping the gulls would sense that it was there and quickly destroy the evidence. Talons tearing through plastic to reach flesh and bone, pecking and chewing until nothing remained. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Now, we should say, of course, that, that, um, that the book is written um, with no paragraph breaks and justified, and so flows as a, a film would do. I mean, basically, it flows evenly, you know, through the projector, and all scenes are incorporated into that singular flow. That was clearly a decision that you made. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted it to feel like each chapter was like a reel. Yeah, exactly. Um, and but to be honest, it was less about that originally. It was more that I just don't like paragraphs. Um, yeah, who does really? Um, I mean, you know, overrated, well, right? Well, no. The more you know, the more I write, I'm I'm very conscious of how the text is going to look on the page as I'm yeah, doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted this to feel very immersive. From the <clears> off, I knew I wanted it to feel very immersive for in terms of how you read it. And when I look at when I read. I might be reading this page, but my eyes glancing at all the paragraph breaks where the speech is, where you might want to give yourself a break as a reader. And actually, I wanted to control where you would get the break as a reader <laughs> per se, because I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. you know, it's written in the first person. It's sort of like a voice in your ear, so it feels very intimate. Yeah, yeah. So I did want it to roll that way. And I think, you know, if I started putting paragraph breaks like breaks in trains of thought, it do, it didn't really work for me. And when you think about kind of your own internal monologue, yeah. that is completely unpunctuated. There are no paragraphs in your own internal monologue. No, I mean absolutely right. <laughs> and I mean you're in you know you're in some great and and very high bar company with the you know with the anti paragraph position, of course, um, which is you know um, definitely a community to belong to. Um, but it's really striking. You've got a, a you know a great voice for the maestro, and, and of course you know a, another um, maestro in fiction could come across as really a staggeringly unpleasant person. But he is very sensitive. He's open to experience. He wants to find you know the kind of you know the kernel of being the the, the, the spark and fire of encounter. 
encounter. Yeah. He's not fossilised, you know, on a pedestal beyond... Yeah. I wanted to write... A, I really wanted to write a book about an auteur, um, first and foremost. Uh, you know, in terms of how books come, it's really a coalescing of ideas, and then you have this one kind of dynamic moment that you're like, OK, oh, this makes sense of everything that I've been doing in the last couple of years. And um, I went to see an exhibition of Polaroids by Vim Vendors at the Photographer's yeah, Gallery. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I really love... Polaroids, I take loads, I'm really interested in people who use that for, you know, that medium. And it was a really amazing show. And what really blew me away was it had a really dynamic narrative focus. He typewritten all these yeah, yeah. Um, cards story, on yeah, the walls. Yeah. And you kind of got this sort of journey of, of his life as, a, as, a, as an artist. It wasn't just about um, Polaroids from, they weren't film stills. No. They were, you know, him working, him with his kind of, collaborative crew of people him you know on a road trip you know coast to coast with Sontag when you know they had like 2p between them so you kind of had all this stuff um and I I was literally going around there and I I was I just thought this is the absolute moment that I need to write a book about a film and from the point of view of a filmmaker and sort of leading up to that point between my last book and this book, I'd been doing all these strange things. Like I'd been rewatching every single Fassbinder film and reading his biography again and rewatching like Visconti and reading a shitload of Pasolini and a lot of Italian novelists from the mid 20th century, like um, Giorgio Bassani, Natalia Ginsburg, Mm -hmm. Pavese, um Marante, I mean tons of those people. So what I was really interested in was writing about a an auteur, a queer auteur. This is really about sort of queer creative life and trying to show a kind of a life of queer joy. And one of the things that really fascinated me about Pasolini and Fassbinder <laughs> and Visconti, so were massively talented, really, really interesting, but really complicated yeah. individuals and none of them were particularly happy. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to do was write Right, and also, you know, if you think about Can and the kind of the di- the dynamics of kind of the auto setup, it's kind of really sort of you know, it's really kind of heterosexual. Yeah, so yeah. actually, what I wanted to do was write a filmmaker who was queer, who came from that kind of pedigree, who was probably you know he's in his fifties, he's probably you know of the same vintage of people like Almodova, who had come through. And he's Eastern European, he's from an unnamed Eastern European country. So he's come through sort of all these societal shifts and he's part of this creative community that that were influenced by things like punk and, you know, making subversive mm. work and wanting to shock people and being the toast of the kind of European film festivals by being, you know, outrageous and being an arsehole. But then they mature into virtuoso filmmakers. You've got this person who's obviously had a very full creative life and he's in this kind of virtuoso moment and he's sort of he's been an arsehole he's been all these things but actually the most important thing is that he has he works within a creative family and he's really happy and he's you know he's married and he's got kids he's kind of got these two families and he needs both of those kind of families to function so that's kind of that was sort of my response to those kind of other filmmakers who really fascinate me, but I wanted to see it done in a different way. No, it's tremendous. And I think that, you know, the inflection you brought to it is really, you know, necessary and, and, you know, incredibly rewarding. Let's go back to when you first published, and that was with We Are The New Romantics, 2005, Mm. I think. Four. Four. And in 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 an interview at that time with 3AM magazine, you were asked, you know, who you might... Imagine could make an adaptation of that book, and you said Pavlikovsky, Pavel Pavlikovsky. 
Oh, wow. At that no. time, yeah, way back. I was really obsessed with him at the time. And you were also very, very... Um, <laughs> he's, he's brilliant, though. He is a brilliant filmmaker, of course, yeah. and since then, of course, Oscars for yeah. Ida and, and so on. Yeah, I can't um, afford him now. No, exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then he was you know, primarily a documentary maker and made one feature, Last Resort. But you also um, declared, you know, significant... Um, influence from Hanif Qureshi as well, which would make real sense, at, I think, at that time. Not really, I have to say. Right. He wasn't an influence on me creatively. Right. He was an influence on me in terms of, you know, the street representation matters. So I remember yeah. being 15 yeah, yeah. and reading the screenplay of My Beautiful Laundrette and being, like, really blown away and then seeing the film and just kind of following his career. And it was at that point I, I knew I wanted to write as about 15. Right. So I literally will always, you know, that was the moment that I saw someone like Hannah thought, if Hannah can do it, I can do it. Exactly. So, you know, our work is like literally poles apart. So on a creative mm -hmm. level, it, it wasn't influencing what, what I did. I was far more influenced by, you know, the kind of queer writing that was coming out of here, London and New York mm -hmm. in the late 80s, early 90s. But that, you know, he, you know, and also I was really fascinated by <laughs> that he was, you know, he'd come from a theatre background, he was writing plays, then he was writing novels, then he was directing films to sort of, you know, around the time of London Kills Me. So that, as a sort of Asian creative polymathy, was, you know, queer. You know, that was really exciting Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, but that 3am that interview is kind of interesting because it kind of... I've really forgotten about it, but it really... You know, we talked about Goldsmiths and, and, and studying film a lot. And for that followed me around for a long time. People are like, oh, mm. you're like a cinematic writer. And it kind of really pissed me off because right. it was like, you know, I'm, you know... My writing comes from reading a shitload of books and it's being indebted yeah, yeah. to literature. So for a long time, even though there is this sort of cinematic <laughs> strand that really covers all my work, sometimes it's explicit, yeah. sometimes it's just on my mood board, you know. There are some novels, like, literally on that page, which, on that table, which are basically indebted to some, a director's lighting, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's only in my head, whereas some books are a bit more kind of explicit. But with this, by the time I was... About to write this, I was like, oh, fuck it, I just need to write a book about a film being made. And it, you know, it kind of satisfied my itch to A, just do it the way I'd always wished I was I was technically able to do it. But also it, it sort of satisfied something in me in terms of trying to make a film because I could never actually do, make a film myself because I'm just not collaborative enough to do it. <laughs> I just don't have the I don't have the patience and I'm 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 just too precious. I'd be a nightmare. So this is this is the way I did it. I, I literally made a film, but I kind of you know I had to, I had to write it down. Well, we'll come on to what that means for your <laughs> uh, for the optioning of this particular book in a minute. Um, but it's interesting, you know, because of course, yeah, you studied film at Goldsmiths, and and then obviously wrote wrote your first book. But in this, you know, and very kindly, you um, drew attention to some of the titles mentioned in, in the blog for for the shop earlier this week. Um, you have an a very eclectic list. I mean, it's clearly a cinema, it's a world cinema informed list, but it's not the obvious titles. There are people like Zanussi and Agnes Varda, uh, Visconti and so on, but you're not choosing, you know, the flagship titles. And so what was your journey into film? And, and, and apart from the idea of, you know, Qureshi as a kind of life you know, mm. model. How did you come into film and how did you then start to map your journey through it? Well, that list, so basically, for, for anyone here who doesn't know, I wrote a blog for the LRB this week, which was like a sort of cinema playlist. And it was sort of a list of kind of films <laughs> that both were sort of in the back of my mind as I was writing this book, but also they're films that just tonally are sort of places you might want to go after you've read this book. So they're not all yeah. about the book. Um, 
So, you know, there's other there's other films from those filmmakers that I love, but of in course, terms of, of tonal, you know, yeah, I was yeah. thinking in terms of when I watch stuff tonally, how what that will add to my work, you know, what yeah, yeah. what stuff what you know, what films leave with me. And sometimes I can watch films and I will never remember the story, but it will be something tonally or it'll be you know, a movement or a, you know, like, you know, it's those kind of things that I pick up on. So, well, I mean, literally, I just, I read a lot of books and I watch a lot of films. It's kind of as simple as that. And, you know, one of the best things about being a goldsmith was in the early 90s, an amazing VHS film library. So you could just watch tons and tons of stuff. And it just got me in the habit of just watching lots and lots of films. And I, you know, I spent my kind of uh, late teens, early twenties, like going to raves and, um, than just sitting in a cinema all day and just watching tons of films. And that just doesn't leave you. And then what happened with this book actually is strangely was I was going through a phase where I just wasn't watching those films. I wasn't going to cinema that much. It was kind of, you know, as and when. But in the lead up to this, I was watching loads of films again. Like I said, I was watching, you know, The Fassbinder and um, Visconti and Pasolini and stuff. So it just got me back into that mindset of just thinking mm-hmm. about filmmaking and, and just thinking about... And also, it was really. I really wanted to write about an auteur. I didn't want to write about a director, like a gun for hire, who just moved yeah. from project to project. It was about someone who basically is in complete control of the entire creative process from really the genesis of an idea to finishing yeah. it, which, you know, obviously has a lot of um, correlation to writing novels. I mean, this is very much an analogy for writing books um, in the same way that, you know, All the Days and Nights there yeah, yeah. is also, you know, I wrote... All the Days and Nights, my fourth novel, which is a book about the life of a an elderly American portrait painter when she's dying and then she's looking back at all her work and she's only ever painted, like, <coughs> her work is centred around painting just two people, her husband and her studio assistant. Um, and I finished that novel and I had a lot of questions that kind of left, sort of, I had that were unanswered. It's the mm-hmm. first time I'd finished a book and it was like, I don't want to write a sequel, but in terms of trying to write about a creative life and trying to get my head around what the creative process is. Mm-hmm. I would want to do that again, but I don't know how. And I just stuck that on the back burner. And then as I started writing this, I thought, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm literally re- revisiting that same idea, but eight years down the line, mm-hmm. what, have I, what is it in, the, in, in this eight-year interval that I've learned that might have changed how I mm-hmm. tackle this. So I've tackled it in a different way. And I sort of ended it thinking, right, well, I want to do a kind of trilogy of those kind of books. So at some point I will write another one about another kind of maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot of it is to do with the fact that I'm just constantly trying to get my head around why I write books mm-hmm. and actually why I've committed to writing. Over, you know, I've been writing since I was like 15. Mm-hmm. And I knew since I was 15, I was, you know, really sort of vocalising, I want to write books. You know, mm. this is what I want to do. So, and that's, you know, that's that's quite a long, that's a lot of years. So I'm constantly thinking about what is what is it? What am I trying to make sense of in terms of what it is? Mm-hmm. But within the framework of fiction, because fiction is my medium. I'm not interested in writing non-fiction. I'm not a journalist. don't write reviews, none of that kind of stuff. The only way I want to kind of understand the world and you know, make sense of and, you know, spotlight things and platform things is literally through fiction. Yeah. So it's it's really, that's how I do it. No, and that's why I do it. Well, I'm very glad you do. I mean, it's, it's tremendous because you raise the questions that many, you know, creative nonfiction writers might do in their own um, in their own way in this. And, and you know, one of the core kind of um, 
wrestling point, shall we say, is you know, is the relationship of life and art, right? Mm. I mean, it's a very obviously, it's a it's a primary um, encounter, and and where the weight and emphasis, or the priority, or the balance of of, of the dynamic between those two is lies and shifts. Now, there's a crucial character in this, to, uh, as you mentioned, of course, um, at the beginning before the reading, uh, Cosima, yeah. who comes into the book, you know, very early on, um, as the maestro arrives in the city, who brings a very, very different dynamic. I mean, a wholly different energy that he's very drawn to. Um, and also, crucially, another story. Now, I just wonder, of course, without giving anything away, we don't want to spoil the ending, of course, as in um, cinema going. Um, the last thing we would want to do is that. Um, but Cosima really does open a possibility for him, both professionally, but also much more in, in terms of life experience, I think. Yeah, I mean, she's she's kind of like the beating heart of the book. So, A, one of the things I find interesting about the setting of the book is, so you've got someone, it's a book <laughs> about a sort of creative grey area. So you've got someone who's finished a film, just edited it, flown, so he's made a film, unnatural environment, you know, artificial environment, edited it, artificial environment flies to this beautiful glamorous city yeah. for this festival again an artificial environment and he's at the he's at the point where he's, he has to let go of this work yeah. and once he's presented it it's no longer his he can't he can i mean there's talk you know you there's sort of always like i could you know tinker with it anybody whatever. but essentially the, the 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 thing is done and he has to hand it over and he understands that but what he he is sort of flailing a bit is because he's in this gray area in terms of what comes next yeah. what is the next thing i do um and you know directors are constantly there are always five projects ahead. And he's at this point where he's like, I don't know what it is. Yeah. So he meets this woman. And one of the, the interesting things about the, the relationship I find interesting is, as you get older, I think the chances of kind of meeting people where you really have a very instant and quite deep connection over kind of shared experience is actually quite rare. Mm. Um, so she's of a similar age, and they've both come up in that same kind of way. I mean, you know, Italy's social history, yeah. you know, from the sort of latter part of the 20th yeah. century, 70s and 80s, years of lead, just really, really interesting. Yeah. So she has come from that, and, you know, she's, you know, again, she kind of comes from a kind of, you know, 80s European <coughs> sub kind of punk background. Um, and she's a writer, and, you know, she comes... She's got, she had a boyfriend who was like a graffiti artist. So they have a lot in common. Um, and obviously he is, he is a familiar to that city, but he is a stranger to the city. She is the resident of the city. So she's taking him on a journey for, for kind of all the, all the back streets that he doesn't know, but also in terms of um, she's leading him through her own biography by mm -hmm. doing that. And he finds that very beguiling. And obviously he is like, he basically... It, so this is the spoiler. He finds out she's a writer. So then he says to someone, find me her books, and they bring her his books, and he stays at one night and reads one of her books. And it is that kind of... What I wanted to capture was that kind of sense of wonder where you read something or you see something by someone you think might be vaguely interesting, and you're so moved by it, and you're like, who is this person who has just written that or made mm -hmm. that thing? Where have they come from? Like, who are they? I need to know who this person is. So he's really, you know, and he's queer, you know, there's not a romantic thing. It's not like some, you know, it's not leching off to some strange woman. But they have some kind of emotional connection because mm -hmm. he's so really enraptured by her. Mm -hmm. So 
that um and you know she's really kind of feisty and interesting she's like a really kind of independent woman and she's very um unapologetic about um her own kind of creative life and what her goals are um and she's just a really you know she's just you know if i met that woman i'd be like she's fucking amazing who is that woman <laughs> um and he he really kind of has that sense um, and also what I like is is the sort of power dynamic she's not phased by him she's like I know who you are you don't tell me who you are yeah, yeah. I know who you are no it's very good very early um, yeah. and what I wanted to to show was a dynamic where they felt like they were equals so she wasn't like trying to get his approval he's trying to get her approval more Absolutely. so yeah. um, so it means that she can kind of take the piss out and say, this is all ridiculous. You've got all these people running around after you. Do you not find this ridiculous? And he's like, well, yeah, it's ridiculous, but I love it. You know? No, I mean, she's a great foil to that. But also she brings to him this extraordinary gift, which is this mural mm. by, you know, her, her much younger boyfriend many, many years ago, mm. um, which is, you know, in an overgrown housing project that's threatened with gentrification mm. and so on. And it, and it really becomes this kind of... Um, almost like frozen cinema. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's a parallel space, a, a parallel screen, if you like, that then becomes an engine later in the book. Um, that really is a, a very powerful device that allows you to do lots of things and to speak about the changing city a, a, alongside that. Yeah. Did that come from a particular a moment, a, 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 you know, a, a viewing yourself, or, or was it imagined? It, it's, it's all imagined, but it really comes from, you know, walking around European cities, I know and don't know, it's literally one of my favourite things to do. Yeah. Um, whether I just, you know, get lost or have someone show me art and stuff, yeah. I just really, really love it. So I wanted to capture something within that moment. And obviously, in terms of cinema, cinema is all about trying to define what a moment is. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, you know, he's taken to this mural in a in a in a in a in a apartment block that's about you know soon to be gentrified in a garden on a wall, and it's literally you know a it's a lost story, a story that could you know a his <coughs> someone's personal history that could disappear at any minute, but also it's what the moment signifies. You know, he's really caught up in her personal story, and he's like. In, in the same way that he's enraptured by who's this woman who wrote the book, he's like, he's thinking of this kid doing this mural when all the life was going around him, uh, someone who's now no longer here, and obviously the life of that community is no longer here because everything mm. um, in that part of town has been shut yeah, down and gentrified. Yeah, yeah. So it's a mixture of all those things. Um, and I I think about those things a lot. I mean, my last novel, This Brutal House, which was set in the kind of, in New York, in um it's like a queer protest novel set mm. with the voting community. That, again, was very much about this idea of kind of gentrification mm. and the idea of what the city can do for you, mm. what the city gives you, what the city takes away from you, how a city can make vast swathes of communities completely invisible mm. or demonised or whatever. Um, but this was done in a more explicit way in the, in the sense of, you know, there's a lot of very expensive real estate here and it could all go up in a puff of smoke. Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, and you know, you, you see this in London, obviously, because London is constantly changing. But you know, the London, even these streets from twenty years ago, completely different streets. Yeah, no, I mean, it catches that very well, and it becomes, you know, obviously this this point of kind of creative resistance, you know, sense of other possibilities within the fabric of the city, but it also becomes, of course, you know, the the kind of visual engine for who owns a story mm. and who can tell uh, uh, you know another person's story and what might that mean for a professional auteur who is looking for his next project yeah it's very much about 
where stories come from and who has the right to tell them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he is obviously of the mind that anything is a story yeah. and if he likes something, he should be able to do it. And what the book explores as you go through it is, well, is that is that the right thing to do and is Absolutely. he the right person to be doing it? Because um, also I wanted to write, you know, I'm always interested in writing characters that are three-dimensional. So it's a very kind of paternal novel. He has a very strong relationship with with his younger actors um, and he has this sort of family set up around mm. him um, in terms of production teams. So you kind of get the sense that he's not an arsehole, <coughs> but I did want to show him kind of tripping up and, mm-hmm. the, you know, the idea that his point of view isn't always... Um, isn't always the correct view. Um, And obviously she is the one who kind of brings him up on it. What's the time? It's like being lost in the movie. Suddenly remember, you're all here. Um, Let's have a look. Yeah, it's quarter to eight. How did that happen? Um, I've said more than enough, over to you. We hopefully have laid the scene um, for encounter with the book. I urge you, of course, to buy it. Many thanks indeed to the LRB shop for making this event possible. Today, Claire, David and Gail, of course, thanks to Millie at Dialogue Books as well. Um, any thoughts from what you just heard? If you've read the book already, fantastic. Um, any sense of, of life and art, film and, and fiction, meetings and, and possible encounters? Any thoughts from any of you? Please use David's roving microphone. I don't Recording. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, that, yeah. first and then, whichever, who, yeah. Oh. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Is Luca Guadagnino an inspiration? Is he an inspiration? Um, yes, in terms of, I absolutely love his body of work. Um, and I very much like his films set in Italy, for sure. Um, but as I was writing it, that, that film wasn't on the horizon at all. So it's kind of, it, you know... I, I, I had this sort of massive kind of Italy fetish. So that really came out as I was right. You know, it's interesting. When you publish a book, you have no idea the kind of environment a book comes out in. So, um, you know, there's there's lots of kind of nice coincidences with, you know, that film coming out and being kind of a thing and, you know, lockdown making people really kind of, you know, this book was kind of a wish fulfillment book when it came out last year in that sense of, you know, people could read it and imagine themselves somewhere else. And when you write, you don't necessarily, you have no idea the environment your book's coming out in. But, yeah, he's amazing, obviously. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, please. How do you feel about the book potentially becoming a film and how controlling do you think you're in- going to be inclined to be about that <laughs> process? Actually quite quite chilled out about it um so we've optioned the book with this really really cool producer um who's done you know a couple of really interesting kind of art house things before and he's kind of really young and hungry and he's like you know a queer brown filmmaker and we kind of have a lot of references in common and we kind of have a kind of shared direction of where we want the film to go and the kind of people we want to work with creatively but on a kind of an official level, I'm not particularly involved because the most involved I could be directly is to write a script and I'm just not going to write a script because everything I want to say is kind of in the book. And if I wrote the script, I would have to film that script and you can't write a script and expect it to be filmed because that 500 people are going to work on it. And I couldn't 
write a script based on this book and have it taken apart it would be too difficult so you know and also what's interesting and this film book discusses is the history of film is the history of adaptation so if you're going to make a film it has to be adapted so whoever takes this will find the story they want from this film and tell that film and i'm interested to see that process happening as long as we kind of work with interesting people who have the creative integrity to do it so they wanted to change it up i wouldn't be actually that fussed about it if they have creative integrity I mean, the producer does sound like, you know, the perfect person to kind of travel alongside at least at this point and see where, yeah. where it goes, you know, which is great. And, and, and also, obviously, 95%, 99% of books that get optioned don't get made into films. So part of it is that I'm just interested in the process and seeing how far we take it. You know, my second book was optioned and we got really, really close to it being made. <clears throat> and then, you know, it was one funding partner dropping out. They yeah. just kind of killed it. But, you know, they had a, you know, when they have a shoot date in a cast and they're ready to go, it's that close. So that was kind of tantalising. But, you know, if it happens, it happens. It re- there's, mm. there's a lot of kind of um, goodwill. There's a, lot, there's a real desire in, from a lot of people to see this made, which makes me think that it could actually happen. But we just have to find the right people to work with. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we'll see what happens. What is interesting, of course, is the film industry loves work about itself. Yes. And, and that's really a bonus, I think, yeah. at this point. And also it celebrates the whole machinery of the uh, industry. Of yeah, film. they love being self-referential. So, in a way, you know, it's kind of, it's looking pretty good from my point of view, I think. Um, yeah, any more thoughts, questions? Yeah, yes, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say the trilogy, um, uh, and obviously with All the Days and Nights is visual art, um, and this is filmmaking, both visual, yes. is what I'm getting at. Do you know what the third artwork will be and what challenges it might be? If it yeah, I, I do, but I can't tell you. Okay, yeah, fair. Um, but also, I'm trying not to think of it as uh, as kind of a logical trilogy, but what I'm interested in actually... After I wrote, as I was writing that, so actually what I'm interested in is what do I do thematically that I want to lump together in terms of just having not just a body of work, like a lump of books, but just things that kind of connect to each other. Like I'm really obsessed with, you know, Muriel Spark um, in the early 70s, was writing a whole load of books while she lived in Rome, kind of like those things. So sort of I want to, I'm working on another book, I'll probably do this creative book at some point, and then I'll just kind of, that will be it, and I'll just work on other things. Well, you're in the right place for Muriel Spark. I mean, this shop loves Muriel Spark, correct, Gail? Yeah? Huge in in, in, in these shelves. Um, let's tease out a little bit more that idea of the relationship between life and art, because you start with this great Robert Bresson quote from his notes for a cinema, yeah, yeah, cinematograph. Yeah. That's such a good book. Such a good book. In the shop, Gail, do you think? Let's check while while we're um we can check that while we're we're finishing the uh, conversation. The NYRB put it out. They did slim volume, very slim. Um, uh, kind of note yeah notes notes to making way beyond film of course. I mean mm. about life, but you start with a great one. The point is not to direct someone, but to direct oneself. Yeah. And they're thinking, well, go on, Robert, you know, live like that and you stop talking to us. Um, but in a way, what it really, really brings home, which is, you know, seems to me at the core of the book, is this idea of does life to be validated need to be transformed into something else, mm. i.e. art, right? Yeah. A book, a film. Now, that's a big question, of course, and there's not a single answer and there's not a fixed answer for anybody who tries to answer it because life will change their responses as, as it goes on. But what is your sense, having been through the process of writing this about that relationship between life and its representation? Um, 
I don't think there's an easy answer to there that. There isn't an easy answer. Who said it? No one said I, it was easy. You know, I think actually my answer is that, at, you know, for me, a creative life is important and writing books is incredibly important, but it's just not everything. And actually that that is explored by him <coughs> where he sort of realised that actually I really love making films, but it isn't everything. There's other things that are just as important to me. Yeah, yeah. So you can be really serious about what you do, but it shouldn't make you miserable. So is it about <laughs> is it about a form of attention then? I mean, you give attention to something, and it, by doing that, whether it's you know washing up or you know an allotment or whatever it might be, is it the idea of attention? Writing a book takes a huge amount of focus and and rigor. Is that what's inside the art making process? No, I think it's just kind of living life. You know, just you know, just being open and just like living like daily life and being really immersed in an in in another in another life that isn't your creative life. Because it's very easy, I think, as creative people, just to be constantly wrapped up in yeah. yourself and your own ideas and your own needs. And you know, what's interesting about film is obviously filmmaking and the film industry is full of complete nightmares who are just literally they are defined by what they yeah. do and you know, but this is someone who is defined by his what you know. I'm interested in people in this book in terms of creative life as a vocation. So mm-hmm. it's important that I do this. This is what I know how to do. Yeah. But life is important. So. Life is massively important. And what's interesting about the Maestro and Cosimo is, of course, is, is that they, as you say, share more or less the same chronology, and they understand and can talk about that moment of youthful discovery, as you did with Goldsmiths, mm. of you know the creative possibilities of a life. I mean, this really does um, convey, although it's set in the you know in the the the, the fifties age bracket of of the present tense, it really conveys that magical moment of discovery, which I'm sure everyone here can can recognise of of realising the world is bigger than you, bigger than what you've inherited, and so on and so on. How easy or not was it to kind of go back to that moment and and to capture it? Not massively hard, actually, because even though I I do consider myself to be very cynical, I never actually lose a sense of wonder and I like to be surprised by things. You know, I I never feel that I know anything. You know, so every time I start a book, I really start a book thinking I don't know anything. Um, So... So yeah, I didn't. In have, a way, you're starting again. Yeah, I didn't have to dredge up memories of the you know the times I discovered stuff and was surprised. I discover stuff all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, you read a great book, you see a great film, you have a great taco. You know, you're Absolutely. constantly making discoveries that that make you happy or change how you feel about things or confirm how you feel about things, and that's you know. So you're, you lose an appetite for that, then there's no point. Then it's all that. over, right? Yeah. So you're a kind of creatively curious cynic. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, possibly the first one I mean, in the shop. Yeah, maybe I'm not as cynical as I like to think. I mean, I'm I am driven by curiosity. Yeah, yeah. In you know, creatively, aesthetically, you know, all that stuff. I'm just curious about. No, tremendously. I'm glad you are. At the heart of the of the maestro's uh, film, uh, the one he's taken to the festival, of course, is an adaptation, as you said earlier. Yeah. William Maxwell's The Folded Leaf, which I hope is on the shelf, Gail. Any news? <laughs> Let's check over there. P- possibly an NYRB. David knows. Already over <laughs> <on> there. <laughs> um, a range of Maxwell titles available, of course. Um, it's a great book. Great really book. Is. But tell, I mean, that's, you know, you sign that, you know, I don't know, a handful of lines into the book. Very important. And of course, you know, it allows you to have, you know, the two leads and so on and so on. But just give, us, it come? give us a little bit it, of that. Basically, with all my books, what happens is I kind of just 
writing stuff in notebooks till I get that kind of moment where I think, okay, this is what it might be. And then I literally write a page and I look at that page and I say, this is the book. <laughs> so this paragraph is as the day I wrote, one evening I wrote it. Great. And I literally said, you know, I flew in and we adapted the folded leaf. And basically William Maxwell, I love William Maxwell. He's like one of my cornerstones. I think he's an amazing writer. Um, and I knew I wanted to write about queer filmmaker and because the history of, f- of film is about adaptation, I wanted him to adapt something. I like the in-joke of European filmmakers adapting books and the films and nothing like those books. Yeah. You know, so that kind of amuses me. But it was it, it, it's literally my subconscious. I wrote it, looks at that sentence and I didn't want to change it. I thought, yeah, I want him to adapt The Folded Leaf. <laughs> and then, you know, you just move forward from there. Tremendous. Please find the folded leaf, of course, but not before you found Never Given This Wonderful Book and the other titles uh, on the table uh, behind me. Um, if there aren't any other questions, I'm going to close things formally now, but that doesn't mean we can't enjoy, of course, the more informal, relaxed environment that the shop offers. Many thanks indeed, as always, to the LRB shop for making these events possible, of course, supporting literature in all the incredible ways that we know it does. There are more events to come, of course. We're back, the first time for me, back in this particular space uh, in real life, as we call it, um, since 2019. It's great to be back. Um, that's still the event's magnetised wall over there. So Niven's poster is there. You, you might want to sign the poster, perhaps, and we could we could mark that. There's your I poster. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. You take the poster. Um, events keep on coming, of course, um, on there. Please find them online in all the ways you know how. Um, please do spend some time. Have another glass of wine if you'd like to. But before you do any of that, of course, and before you buy the books, please thank for his incredible insights, conversation, and writing, Niven of England. Thank you very Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.